Good evening. It is good to see each of you. If you're a guest, uh, again, we welcome you. It really is encouraging to have you with us. If you would be open your Bibles to 1 Timothy, the second chapter, we're going to mention just one or two verses very briefly before we get there. But tonight, we'll spend much of our time in 1 Timothy, the second chapter. And we will have slides for a lot of those verses, but I hope you'll open up your scriptures and, and uh, we can study this text uh, together. What a blessing it is uh, to be in the Mount Juliet congregation for a lot of reasons. We've just come out of an elders, deacons, ministers meeting, and we're reminded there of how blessed we are to have men that truly love God, that truly love the church family here at Mount Juliet, and simply want to serve us, this community, through serving God. And uh, what a blessing it is. And I know within that, there's a lot of families, a lot of wives and children uh, within those families. And for all of you, uh, we truly are thankful for all you do to lead us in such an effective way. When we think about the topic today, one of the things that we need to make very clear when we ask the question, can women lead in Christ's church? We must see that simply because a culture around us tries to place equality in the sense of neutrality or a generic approach, if you will, to the gender roles, that that's something that God did not design us that way. And so therefore, He is not going to, by His commandments, to allow it. Now, of course, we can rebel against God and we can try to act like that men and women are exactly the same and whatever role that they play in their home, they can do it exactly the same. Whatever role in the church, they can do it exactly the same. And we can pretend like it's not there. But the point is, as, as we've talked about a lot this year in kingdom living, we can live out in the world and in the world we can do things any way we want to do them. But if we're going to come and to live in the Lord's kingdom, that sanctified living means that we allow God to define our lives and to create us, if you will. And we must realize that in the home and in the church, God has expected men to be the leaders and he expects women to be in submission. Now, I guess I need to give that plea to you another time that I feel like in the last few years I've given it so long that you would be opening your mouth and saying this with me, right? But please let me say it again for this lesson today. Culture is going to tell us to cringe when you hear that because submission is a nasty word. It's negative. It's horrible. And yet, it's not. Who are you going to believe? God paints the picture of submission in a beautiful sense. When Jesus came to this earth, what did he do? He submitted to his heavenly Father. It wasn't anything negative about Jesus submitting to the Father. Everybody here, if you're going to become a Christian, the only way you can become a Christian is to deny yourself and take up your cross. And that means crucifying self-will. In other words, it's saying, Lord, I submit to you. We literally cannot become a Christian unless we are willing to submit. If we're part of this congregation here, we can't be a faithful part of this congregation unless we're willing to submit to the elders who have oversight over us. And do you realize that each elder is under the submission of the eldership? There's not anybody here, even including the elders, that aren't under the oversight of the elders, if you choose to be. Now, you can rebel against that. And you can say, I'm not going to submit to them. You can do that, but you're not following God's plan. You remember that we've talked about this before. 
It's interesting how people will cringe and say submission is a negative thing, but yet they want to live at places where people practice submission. They want to work at places where people practice submission. They want to send their kids to places where people practice submission. You can send your kids to this school that is run by the gangs and rebellion, or you can send your kids to this school where the students submit to the teachers and the teachers submit to the principal and the principal submit to the school board and everybody there does what they're supposed to do. Which place are you going to send your, your kids? You can choose to work at a place where everybody rebels against each other and every day is drudgery because it's just fighting back and forth. Or you can work at a place where things are productive because people come in and they do their job, they submit to those that are over them. You can live on a street where, where riots rule, where, where rebellion is the normal everyday life. Or you could say, I want to live in a street where people, Romans the 13th chapter, they submit the governing authorities over them. They obey those that have rule over them. There's not any exception here, I wouldn't think, where everybody here longs to live in a place of submission. Friends, I just begin this night by reminding you that the world is constantly believing the lies of Satan. That's the only way Satan can work. Satan likes to convince us that there's something nasty about submission. And what we need to recognize that is that that's far from the truth. And in today, as we study this, this morning and tonight, I hope that we can read these passages and when we see words about submission, instead of there being a cringing, cringing and negative response, I hope that we can read it through holy eyes and say, what a beautiful plan God has for us. If you can't see it, can you walk by faith? And I would suggest to you that if you can walk by faith in it, you'll live long enough to say, you know what? I've come to believe it. God's plan really is a very beautiful plan. So what do we know about the role of women. We're going to study that in just a moment when we get into the lesson, but by way of introduction, what do we know about the worth of women? Listen, I need to recognize that the worth of women is equal to any man, that God does not play favorites. He loves us all equally. You remember why he sent Jesus to die? Galatians 3 and 27, for as many of you have were baptized into Christ, Jesus have put on Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor free, female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. If we want to talk about essence and worth, there is no way that anyone could argue that men in the sight of God are more valuable than women. Not in any stretch of the imagination. And, and so what do we see in the first century church? I want to just give you a flyover of just a few random thoughts, okay? And, and these are beautiful. In the first century church, we see the value of women. And Philip's daughters had the gift of prophecy in Acts the 21st chapter in verse 9. And you can imagine how they used that in a beautiful fashion. Priscilla and Aquila taught Apollos the way more perfectly. That's right. The scriptures tells us that, that Priscilla was in on that. It wasn't in a public assembly. But it was after it was over, this husband and wife pulled him aside and they together taught him the way more perfectly in Acts 18. We know from Titus 2, 3, 4, and 5 that older women are not only having the opportunity, they are commanded to teach the younger women. So if in this audience right now you can look around and see women younger than you, women, you have the responsibility to be willing to teach them. We see the example of Phoebe. 
in Romans the 16th chapter. And even though there's a lot of things said today about Phoebe that the scriptures doesn't say about Phoebe, what the scriptures does say about Phoebe is beautiful. And that is Paul identified her as a servant of him and of many others and literally wrote in, in sense that, that small portion of Romans 16, a letter of endorsement, if you will, to say, hey, to the church at Rome, I'm telling you, you want to get behind this woman's ministry. Isn't that beautiful? This woman was doing something. The Bible doesn't tell us what it is. But she was doing something that made a powerful impact in the Lord's kingdom. And he writes and says to that church, you get behind her. You support her in that ministry. In that very same chapter, we skip down to verse 6 and we see that Mary labored much with Paul. And then in, in Acts the 16th chapter in verse 15 and then over in, in verse 40 at the end of that chapter, we see that Lydia was a wealthy woman who used her home and her influence for the gospel uh, and, and also to host the church. We also see in Luke the 8th chapter that women provided financially for Jesus' ministry. That's, that stands out to me as, as just an interesting and amazing fact. I suppose some of those women were wealthy and definitely they were generous. And so when Jesus was on this earth, who supported Jesus? We think about supporting missionaries. Who supported Jesus? There were many women that supported Jesus. Dorcas, she did so much good that in Acts the ninth chapter, when we see Dorcas having passed away, some of the church stood around and held up the goods that she had made for them because they missed her and they loved her. I can't help but think in this lesson today and in this point in this lesson about a good example where Miss Ann Craddock, she submitted. She lived her life in submission to God and to her elders. And for those years that she was married to her husband. And she had what the scriptures tells us in 1 Peter 3, that quiet and meek spirit. But yet that one single lady in her quiet way made a huge impact on the Lord's kingdom. Huge. What would the church be if you took all of the faithful and godly women out of it today, she wouldn't exist as we know it. It would be destruction. It'd be a disaster. The church as we know it, the health and the beauty and the strength of the church just would not be there. We must believe that God's plan is not only commanded, but that it is beautiful and that it is powerful. We don't need women doing men's roles. And we don't need men fulfilling women's roles. We need men stepping up and being what God has called them to be. We need women stepping up and being what God has called them to be. And the beauty is that we will have God's family the way God wants it to be. And that will be perfect and strong and in that powerful as we think of this, as we began this morning, what are we to do in worship? We're all to sing, we're all to pray, we're all to give, we're all to take the Lord's Supper, we're all to study, but are there restrictions? We noticed this morning that there are two passages that deal with these restrictions. One is 1 Corinthians 14, and another is 1 Timothy the second chapter. And let's look at 1 Timothy the second chapter tonight. 
As you turn to 1 Timothy, the second chapter, if you know much about 1 Corinthians, the 14th chapter, and then you go over and compare, or at least lay down beside it the, the parallel of the study of 1 Timothy 2, there's probably something that at times that has been a little bit nagging. I hope that all of us want to study the Scriptures with integrity. And that is, we don't want to feed into the Scriptures things the Scriptures doesn't say. We out of the scripture things that the scriptures does say. And one of the things that's very clear in 1 Corinthians the 14th chapter is that he was saying these things about when the church came together. You know, one of the things that can be a little bit worrisome when we're wanting to simply say, Lord, I want to follow you, teach me. It's not quite as clear in 1 Timothy 2. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but if I ask you to raise your hand right now, how many of you have been concerned about whether or not those teachings in 1 Timothy 2 are about when the church comes together, or is it about women all across the world? There'd probably be a lot of hands that would go up, because if you've studied it deeply, most of us have been there where we say, I want to know, I just want to know, is God putting this under the umbrella of when the church comes together, or does it have to do with something else? So I'd like to take just a few minutes this evening, and would you look with me, 1 Timothy, the second chapter, and we're going to read verse 8 in just a moment, but if you want to see the setting back up in verse 1, he is exhorting us to be very active in prayer, and we're going to pray in, in verse 1 and 2 for all men and, and even our leaders, and the reason we're going to do that is in 3 and 4, because we want all individuals to be saved, and then... Let me go ahead and mention this. This is so important, and we really don't have time to develop this tonight, but this is vital for our understanding. He is going to get into, beginning at verse 8, specifically to speaking about some things about the role of men and the role of women as we go throughout the second and the third chapter. Before he dives into that in verse 8, I'd like for you to notice what he says in verse 7. And we don't have uh, this on the screen. So if you have your Bible, look at 1 Timothy 2 and verse 7. The Bible that's in your pew should be on 1054. 1054. Let's read together verse 7. Paul says, For which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am speaking the truth in Christ and not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and in truth. Do you remember this morning when we studied 1 Corinthians, the 14th chapter, he took that pause towards the end and he challenged them. He said, who do you think you are? Do you think you're the one that wrote the scripture? And then he turns right around and he says, listen, what I have written to you, I speak by the commandments of God. In other words, he's saying, I have been inspired by the Holy Spirit and what I write is literally the commandments of God. Do you see what Paul is doing in 1 Corinthians 14? right in the middle of this subject matter, and now, just before he begins the subject matter, in 1 Timothy 2nd chapter, he's saying the same thing again. What is he doing? He's saying, I want to remind you that I am an apostle of Jesus Christ. Therefore, I speak by the authority of God. Again, it amazes me the number of individuals that will speak on this topic and undermine Paul and undermine his authority as an apostle, or they undermine the authority of any apostle. Very unhealthy, and we won't trail that one longer right now, but, but notice that to God, it was very important to him for us to hear and to understand that when these things were written, 
They were written by an apostle that is speaking with an authority. Now let's go to verse 8 and let's think about how we can tell whether or not this might be speaking about the church gathering together. Verse 8, he says, I desire, therefore, that the men, and that is the word for male, that's not mankind, that's, that's men, that the men pray everywhere. Now, he goes ahead and says, lifting up holy hands, which is talking about the posture there, without wrath and doubting. And, and we'll get to, to that and say just a few things about that in a moment. So, but I want you to go back and put your focus on where he says that the men pray everywhere. Now, what's interesting is the Greek word for the way in English we would use the word everywhere is probably not the Greek word uh, that, that would be used here. The New American Standard Bible probably chooses the word that best fits our English when the New American Standard says that men pray in every place. And you say, well, what's the big deal about that? Well, it really is a big deal. Because Paul oftentimes has a, with this phrase, in every place, he has a technical use of it to say every place of meeting. Now, brethren, I'm going to teach you what I've studied and what I believe. And you've got to draw your own conclusion on this. I'm not, I'm not spoon-feeding you and saying you've got to believe this. I'm just telling you what, what some of the study is on the Greek. And to me, this is powerful. And, and so when he's talking about, I want the men to pray in every place, meaning every place of meeting. In other words, it's the idea of what are we involved in right now? Tonight, we are in a place of the meeting of the church. Now, it doesn't have to be inside this building. We might choose to go down and, and rent a, a school gym one Sunday, and we could meet there, and we'd be in the place of the meeting of the church. You see here on the screen, there's at least three different places where Paul uses this term in addition to right here. I'm just going to go to one of them to show you tonight. And if you want to back up with me, we don't have this on the slide, but, but look at 1 Corinthians the first chapter, and let's notice how he uses this very same word again. 1 Corinthians 1, and we're going to read verse 2, and, and you obviously were reading right at the beginning of 1 Corinthians, and so what he does is he introduces himself in, in verse 1 as what? An apostle. It's so important that Paul introduces himself so that people realize they're reading words of authority that come from Jesus Christ. And so then in verse 2 he says, to the church of God which is at Corinth. So now he's writing to a particular congregation there at Corinth to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, here it is, with all who in every place call on the name Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. And again, he's not using like we would throw out the word everywhere. To those everywhere. That's not really what he's saying here. He's saying to Christians, those that are sanctified, but yet they get together in congregations and they get together to worship. Those who are in every place of meeting. He says, that's the ones I'm talking to. It's that technical usage to say, let me talk to you about the church that comes together to meet. Now, I know there's probably some of you that are thinking, why is he dwelling on this? But yet others of you know the technicality here is very important. Because if we can't distinguish the setting for this teaching, that means women cannot lead in any place at any time. 
In other words, if there is not a technical place, the words that follow where the woman is not to teach or usurp authority, that would mean that the woman could not teach in the workplace. She couldn't be over men in government and, and etc. And it opens up a whole nother situation to deal with. It's interesting here that in 1 Timothy, the second chapter in verse 8, he seems to make it very clear that he's talking about this technical use of the place where the church comes together. In other words, we would call that the gathering of the church. Now, what does he say there in verse 8? And by the way, the reason that is important, then when you go into verse 9, he says, likewise, he's carrying on that thought. Likewise, this same thought is continuing. But let's, let's talk briefly in verse 8 as we think about the role of women, but also the role of men. And what's clearly stated here is the role of men. What does he want when we come into our meeting place? He says, I want men to pray. And in other words, what is implied there is I, I don't want the women to pray in this situation. And, and so... Let me go ahead, and, and uh, I'm trying not to get ahead of myself here. I'm, I'm going to make this point, and then we're going to get back to the slides here in a minute. Let's go ahead and make this point in verse 8. Notice he wants the men to pray, and he speaks with their posture. He says, lifting up holy hands, and then he, he also speaks in the posture. He doesn't just say lifting up hands, which would have been a very, very, probably one of the most common postures of prayer for men to lead prayer in that day and time was to pray with open hands. It was the idea of receiving God's blessings and giving yourself up to God. And so just as today, we would surely all agree that the most common posture is bowing the head. We know other times that, that in the scriptures, we read of individuals kneeling down to pray. We see times that Jesus looked up to pray. We see times where individuals laid flat on the ground to pray. So the emphasis here is, is not in the sense of this is a posture you must pray in, but it is an acceptable form of posture. But what I want you to notice here, the reason we're bringing this out, it's real important when he speaks to the men. He doesn't just say, I want you to lift your hands up. He says, I want them to be holy hands. In other words, don't go out and live like a heathen in the weak and then come in among the gathering of the church and pray as if you're a holy person. He's saying, be a holy person. And when you pray, make sure those are holy hands. They haven't lived a defiled life in the week. They're holy hands. And when you pray, don't pray in anger. And don't pray doubting. Remember James 1? We're not to pray doubting. We're to pray in faith. And so what he's doing is he's talking not only about the role of men, but he's talking about what kind of man we're supposed to be. And what kind of prayers we pray. We're to be holy men. We are to be faithful. Not pray doubting prayer and faith. We are to be peaceful men. Not angry men, but peaceful men. So much is said in that short verse about what men are to be. Now, lest I get too far ahead of myself, I want you to notice the second and the third chapter, if we were going to give probably the most simple outline, and maybe this is too simple, I give you that, but I was going for simplicity here. I want you to think with me for just a moment. When he mentions in every place, look on this next slide. This is the breakdown. In the second chapter in verse 8, he says, I want men to pray. In the second chapter in verse 9, he says, I want to talk about women's apparel. In the second chapter in verse 11, he says, I want to talk about women's submission. In the third chapter in verse 1, he says, I want to talk about elders' qualifications. 
qualifications. And in the third chapter in verse 8, he says, I want to talk about deacon's qualifications. And then, I don't know if you really call this a bookend. I almost put a bookend here for the third chapter in verse 15 because it, it almost bookends, but perhaps a better word would be a summarization of what he's just said. And if you have your Bible open, I would like to read 3 and 15 because I think this is real important for us to understand that this is the way he would summarize these verses to say, remember it's Paul writing to Timothy, Timothy's working with the church in Ephesus, and he's saying, men, here are things that God's calling you to be. Women, here are some things that God's calling you to be. And then he summarizes it in verse 15 by saying, but if I am delayed, and this is third chapter in 15, if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct, some translations would say how you ought to behave yourself, where? In the house of God, that's that meeting place of God, which is what? The church of the living God, and what does the church do? It is the pillar and ground of truth. Do you realize what he's saying is, Paul's saying to Timothy, I went ahead and wrote these things to you because it may be a little bit longer than what I want in order to get there to you in person. And when I get to you in person, these are some things I want to elaborate upon, but I want you to know how to behave yourself. You remember when, when maybe you were a preteen or a teenager and, and, and your mom was going to leave you for a little bit and, and, and before she left the house, you know what she always said? You behave yourself. And you hopefully knew what that meant. Do you realize that there is a behavior that God expects us to maintain? Now, here's the, here's the key principle. And I think about our elders because they say this in their meetings often. The behavior in the Lord's church. You see, if it was your church, you could do it any way you want. If it was your church, you could behave yourself any way you want. If it was your church, you could pray with defiled hands. If it was your church, you could let women pray. If it's your church, women, you could overdress. You could come in every time the doors are open with a big fashion show, and you could compete with each other. If it was your church, women could do all the leadership, and men could just do nothing, just be apathetic. If it's your church, you could do it any way you want. But you see, he gets down to the 15th verse here, and he makes it real clear. He says, this is the Lord's house, the church of the living God. And he says, the Lord's house is going to stand on truth. That's the ground of truth. And he says, we're the pillar of truth. A pillar holds up and supports something. The church is to hold up the truth. The church is to stand on the truth. And isn't it interesting when we think about us holding up the truth, he puts it as the summary verse for all these verses we just read. When a church has men that have met the qualification for elders and deacons in the third chapter, they're standing on and they're holding up truth. When a church has women that are godly and the way that they behave themselves and conduct themselves, they show godliness and submission, they're holding up truth. When men have not defiled themselves, but they literally are holy men praying and as, as, as holy men in a posture acceptable to God, they are holding up the truth, standing on the truth. What a beautiful summary by God that many people would look at this passage and say, 
This is a negative passage. And instead, God's apostle, inspired by the Holy Spirit, would write this and say, look how beautiful the truth is. Let's conduct ourselves in this way. Let's start into this, and we may have to come back next Sunday night and, and, and finish some of this because there, there's a lot here that we need to cover, but let's go on for just a few more minutes. I know you'd love to stay here all night, but we probably shouldn't. Let's, let's look. When we think of the, some of the roles that men are to have in the church, and, and I'm just based on 1 Timothy 2. I, I know there's a lot of other things, but just based on 1 Timothy 2 and 3, here's some things that, that's the role that he mentions of men. He expects men to lead prayers. He expects men to teach when the assembly is gathered together, or, and we could also include in that preach. And in the church, he expects men to serve as elders, and he expects men to serve as deacons. Now let's go to this next slide, and let's think about, because of those things, here are some restrictions that this passage places upon women. He expects women to not lead prayer, to not overdress, to not teach the men, to not serve as elders, and to not serve as deacons. Those are things that are just simply learned if we study this text as we're going to do. And so when we think about these restrictions, it doesn't restrict the woman from teaching at home. This very same book that we're reading in 1 Timothy, if you go over to the 2 Timothy, remember the first few verses of 2 Timothy, how did Timothy learn his faith? Remember he learned it first from his mother, his grandmother Lois and his mother Eunice. And you remember when we go to the third chapter in verse 15 that he learned the scriptures from his childhood. And so here is a man that is now preaching the gospel and yet it was women in his youth that taught him the scripture. So we see it in home in 2 Timothy 1 and 5. We see it also the older women commanding to teach in Titus, the second chapter in verse 3, 4, and 5. And so now let's, let's dive in, if you will, into the uh, ninth verse of, of 1 Timothy. Uh, we've already talked about the eighth chapter and notice how now in verse 9 on this next slide, he says, in like manner... Also, and that like manner is he's given a specific commandment and dealing with his churches coming together and, and now he's going to go in like manner before it was talking to men and now in a, in a similar way he's going to talk to women in verse 9. He says in like manner also that women adorn themselves in modest apparel with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing, but which is proper for women professing godliness with good works. Now we might say more about this a little bit. It's not really the topic that we're trying to develop in this, but we're studying the text and we need to let the text say what the text is saying. Oftentimes, when we talk about modesty today and in our culture today, what we immediately go to is the idea of not wearing enough clothing, and that would be immodest. But that is not the sole definition of modesty. Modest means appropriate. And what is interesting, this passage here, the context is talking about what is appropriate dealing with the problem of overdressing. 
You know, we, we used to sometime in college, we used to say that, that on Sunday mornings, that, that when, when you went to the local congregations there in Sunday morning, and I have no idea if it's this way today. I, I would think in today's times it's not. But in, in, in my ancient times that I was there. Uh, you know, we would say, we'd say, let's go Sunday morning to the fashion show. And, and it was, you see all the girls decked out. It's like a fashion show. And we've been quick to say throughout the years in the church, God wants us to wear our very best. Now, brethren, I'm not trying, please don't take this to way extreme, all right? Let's just study the scriptures, what the scriptures say. The scripture right here is teaching the women not to wear their very best. Worship should never be about flaunting the individual. It should never be about materialism. It should never be about arrogance and conceit. Listen, a poor person ought to be able to come in, and let's put it in the context. A poor woman ought to be able to come in and sit beside a wealthy woman in the Lord's church and not feel inadequate. Now, I'm not saying, please don't take that to extremes. David is saying that everybody ought to dress completely down. I'm just saying to you that there's a lot more that meets the eye when we study the scripture on this. And I believe we ought to study the scripture on this. And I believe we need to give careful consideration to make sure that we aren't literally teaching the very opposite thing that the Bible teaches and we're not practicing the very opposite thing that the Bible teaches us to live and to practice. And so what do we see here? We see here as you look there in verse 9 that, that, that overdressing, and, and it would be true to an extent in our day and time, but in their day and time it was seen especially through the braided hair the gold, the pearls, and the costly clothing. Now, back a little bit closer, let's, let's look at the grammatical construction of this sentence as we go back to thinking about the role of women, if you will. In 1 Timothy, the second chapter, in verse 11, notice how he says, let a woman learn in silence with all submission. But I'd like for you to notice this construction of this sentence in verse 12. I do not permit a woman to teach or, and other translations would say nor, which is more accurate for this verse. And so we have a not, nor, and but. And you may say, well, why does it matter? Well, it really helps us to understand the grammatical construction of this sentence to help us see that we don't take any of these out by themselves, but each one is building. And so when he says not, he's saying absolute negative. When he's saying nor, he's saying it's, it's neither. It's another negative. And then when he says, but, he's saying, nevertheless. In other words, let me clarify here. So he says, not, what? Permit a woman to teach. Nor, what? To have a, a, a dominion or authority over a man. But to what? Be in silence. In Galatians, the first chapter, I'd like for you to see another example. Paul does this several times. This is the reason it's so important to see this. Paul does a, a neither, nor, and but to link a complete thought together. And, and the reason that's important is oftentimes, and, and, and I'll just go ahead and show my hand, if you will, so you'll see the reason it's important. Some people go to this passage and what they'll pull out is just the phrase silence. And they'll say, oh, well, the, the word silence just simply means peace or to be still. And he wasn't telling women not to speak. Well, there's a problem there. That word silence doesn't stand on its own. It is in a neither, nor, and but clause. 
And so if you're going to study silence, you've got to put it in the construction that's in. And all of this was said together to make a point. Let me give you an example here in Galatians, the first chapter, verse one. I just want you to see another time where Paul does this very same uh, sentence uh, construction. Look in Galatians 1 and 1. Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. What was Paul saying here? Which is interesting in the lesson we're studying tonight. Paul was saying, I'm an apostle and I speak with authority. Now, even though that's real important, that's not why we're reading this. We're reading this to just see the sentence construction. The sentence construction is this. I am an apostle. No. Men did not come and appoint me as an apostle, kind of like Matthias. Nor was it through man. There wasn't men casting lots or it wasn't men coming in and saying, let us teach you how to be an apostle. Remember, his was by revelation. Well, can you give us some clarity? But it was by Jesus Christ. You see, you can't do justice to understanding what Paul means in that phrase, in that sentence, unless you keep all of those three phrases together. That is what Paul does from time to time, and that's exactly what he does here in 1 Timothy, the second chapter. And so if you're going to be quick to run and say, well, let's just try to tweak this word silence, and let's try to, to make it not mean very much. Well you're not going to be fair to the, the construction of the sentence. And the construction of the sentence is that a woman's not to teach, nor usurp authority over a man, but, here's the clarifying, be in silence. Now, as we look at the word definitions, look at back again, second chapter, verse 11. I assure you we're wrapping up here. He says, let a woman learn in silence. And what's interesting is that's a different Greek word than even the word in 1 Corinthians, the 14th chapter. This word too, though, has to do with, with an idea of peace or tranquility that comes from a quietness, including a quietness of speech. And so here he says, I want her to learn in silence, but notice how in 1 Corinthians 14 and 1 Timothy 2, it's always tied what? To that deeper principle. And what's the deeper principle? Principle. Submission. Learn in silence with all submission. And then we've already talked about verse 12 there. So here, here's the, the real important part. On this next slide, I'd like for you to notice the bottom of this slide. And, and this is probably one of the most important things that you need to remember if you're having discussion with other people. Now, if you believe what's been written, we've already studied the most important thing. But when you're having discussion with other people, what will come probably six or seven times out of ten times, maybe eight or nine times out of ten times, is people will refer to the verses that we've just referred to, and then they'll say, but you know, that was all cultural. Paul was helping Timothy deal with a specific problem that was happening in Ephesus, and that was not written for everybody else today. Notice what he ties back this teaching to. In verse 13, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. Verse 14, Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. What did he do? Brethren, he didn't just take it out of the culture of Ephesus. He took it out of every culture. And he says, I don't care where you live. This is the teaching because this doesn't have to do with first century. This doesn't have to do with 2014, 21st century. 
This that I'm teaching you goes all the way back to the order of creation, Genesis 2, and who was deceived in Genesis 3. And so anytime someone tries to say that it was a matter of the culture of that day, friends, they're either lying or they are completely misled about 13 and 14. Paul made sure that everyone would know that this isn't about culture. This is about how God designed man to be head and woman to be submissive and the beautiful plan that He has laid out in that. May God bless us in that. Appreciate so much your attentiveness and we're going to extend an invitation and there may be someone here tonight that you're ready to become a Christian. Maybe not because of what we've studied tonight, but maybe because of study before you got here tonight and you know that you want to become a Christian. We want to give you an opportunity to do that if you're ready to be baptized into Christ. There may be someone here tonight that, that wants to be restored and we want to give you the opportunity to do that. We want to help each other and encourage each other